Welcome once again to Adventures in Theater History. Today, we begin the story of one of the most iconic figures of 19th century Philadelphia theater, and certainly the most important female theater artist of that era, Louisa Lane Drew. It's actually a little difficult for me to write or to say the name that way, Louisa Lane Drew. It's only a modern convention that we do so at all. Respectable ladies were seldom addressed in such a manner in the 19th century. In her heyday, her name was known to everyone in the city of Philadelphia as Mrs. John Drew. Nothing else would have been accepted by her, and she was by all accounts a person of extreme dignity and formality, a formidable presence both on stage and off. Her grandchildren, Lionel, Ethel, and John Barrymore, whom she all raised in her home at 140 North 12th Street in Philadelphia, affectionately called her Mum-Mum, but their father, the debonair and irreverent actor Maurice Barrymore, always solemnly called her Ma'am. She, for her part, never called her son-in-law by name, but instead only addressed him as You. Odd newspaper journalists who were ushered into her august presence to conduct interviews called her Mrs. Drew, if they dared to call her anything at all. The members of the stock company at the Art Street Theatre, which she managed from 1861 to 1892, also said Mrs. Drew during rehearsals, but amongst themselves in the green room they called her the Duchess. Only her very old friend, the actor Joseph Jefferson, who had known her even before she married Mr. John Drew, used her first name. Granddaughter Ethel Barrymore once recalled seeing her grandmother sitting with Joseph Jefferson when they were both in their seventies, reminiscing together by the fire. Do you know, Joe, you're the only person alive who calls me Louisa, said the Duchess, softening for a moment. Then her gaze suddenly fell upon young Ethel, and she snapped back into control. Come, child, it is time for bed. Now, that is one of the few times in this episode I will attempt to voice the words of Mrs. Drew, because I have recruited one of modern-day Philadelphia's finest actresses, Susan Riley Stevens, to properly convey the full vocal presence of our subject. Susie's a good friend and a faithful supporter of this podcast, and I am honored by her sharing her talents with us for this episode. Louisa Lane was born in Lambeth Parish, South London, in January of 1820. Her parents were Thomas and Eliza Lane, an actor and a ballad singer, respectively, two marginal and struggling English performers who were both themselves the offspring of strolling provincial players, that is to say they had no permanent company they were attached to, but found work as they could from season to season. To English theatre folk of that era, everyone in the family was expected to pitch in if the situation called for it, and even before she could talk, little Louisa was in a play. At twelve months old, 
my mother took me on the stage as a crying baby, but cry I would not. But at the sight of the audience and the lights gave free vent to my delight and crowed aloud with joy. From that moment to this, the same sight has filled me with the most acute pleasure, and I expect will do so to the last glimpse I get of them. Or at least that's the story Louisa was told by her mother, because of course she would not have remembered the incident herself. But the tale of her instant enjoyment and acceptance of an actor's life was trotted out in almost every interview she ever gave and duly quoted by every biographer that has ever written about her since. The story's moral is either interpreted as, well, that's the last time she ever got her cue wrong, or that she was obviously born to love the stage, a pat and fun anecdote to pass along without really revealing any darker truths, like the possible pressing need of her fitfully employed parents to earn some extra money by bringing their infant daughter along on the job. And this gets immediately to the point I would like to make about Louisa Lane Drew, right from the start. For someone who was on the stage, performing in the public eye for 76 of her 77 years, we don't actually know that much about her private life. Unlike our previous subject, Fanny Kemble, she did not keep a journal or save bundles of her letters or create scrapbooks. She did not write a carefully annotated two-volume autobiography full of recollections of her life in the theater, like so many of her Victorian contemporaries. I don't have time for such things, she once sniffed to an inquiring reporter. What historians mostly have is one single breezy memoir that she dictated to her son, John Drew, Jr., quite late in life. And let me tell you, even that book is really stingy on personal details. As published, it looks rather like an undergraduate's term paper with vaguely sketched in stories, really wide margins, and with frequent use of illustrations and tangential footnotes to pad out the pages. Her recollections of names and dates don't always jibe with facts elsewhere in the historical record, either. We have other memoirs by other Drew or Barrymore family members, but even they seem slightly overawed whenever they speak of Louisa and are short on details. It was not until after she had passed away that they were brave enough to write down one family secret that she held on to until the day she died. We will get to that interesting story, quite a juicy tidbit, really, much later on. From the details we can still gather elsewhere, we learn that Louise's early years were in fact turbulent and unpredictable, and that for the first 40 years of her life, she was constantly moving from place to place, like a life for someone in the theater often is. She received no formal education at any time, and her private life was a bit messy. Indeed, it resembled rather exactly what respectable people of her day often thought about a theatrical life, full of transient relationships and financial and moral peril. Louisa's reaction to all this disorder was simply to manage. 
She learned to read by being handed scripts. She learned to count and deal with money because it was necessary to survive on skimpy actors' salaries and in her constant dealings with managers, landlords, and hotel keepers. She was a highly successful child actor, and like many child actors, she got along better with adults than with other children. While still in England, she performed in her first melodrama, uh, Frankenstein, and also Meg Murmock, or The Hag of the Glen. And she worked in her first hippodrama, riding on horseback and scaling the heights of the scenery as Prince Agib in Timur the Tartar. Her father died when she was about five years old, so her mother accepted the attentions of another theatrical gentleman, John Kinlock, whom she married eventually. Together, they joined the general trend of 19th-century British theatre folk who were seeking their fortune in the El Dorado of the United States across the Atlantic. Landing in New York, Louisa and her mother were hired and dispatched on a tour, first performing with another famous British expatriate, Junius Brutus Booth. Their initial engagement was in a city that we know well by this point. We were then sent to Philadelphia, to the old Walnut Street Theatre. I appeared as the Duke of York to the elder Booth's Richard III. Indeed, Philadelphia seems to have made a positive impact on little Louisa right from the start. It seemed cleaner and more orderly than most American cities of the day, and the standards of its theatrical world, as we know, were well established. But soon she and her mother were continuing on their way, where her next engagement was with another Philadelphia gentleman we have already met. Then we were sent to Baltimore, to Mr. Joe Cowell's theatre, where I had the honour of appearing as Albert to Mr. Edwin Forrest's William Tell. At that time he was, I suppose, about twenty-two or twenty-three, and the handsomest man I ever saw. Forrest was evidently fond of little Louisa, too. He even gave her an engraved silver medal after the play was over as a testimonial of his admiration for her talents, a memento she was to keep for the rest of her life. She was to act with Edwin Forrest, in fact, many different times over the course of her career, and also with Booth and MacReady and Joseph Jefferson and James Murdoch and Tyrone Power and Charlotte Cushman and Thomas Hamblin and, well, with almost every other major figure of the 19th century American stage in almost every American city that had any sort of theater in it. But back when she was a child actor, little Louisa often didn't even need any co-stars. Her stepfather, John Kinlock, decided she could be the family's chief breadwinner if she became another precocious child star like Clara Fisher, who was all the rage back then. Little Louisa Lane was soon performing many roles, both of young girls and boys, in plays, like the impish tyke Little Pickle in The Spoiled Child, a very popular piece in its time. But also she did adult roles like Dr. Pangloss in adaptations of Candide, there is a charming print of her doing a tour de force play called Twelve Precisely, in which she acted five different roles, male and female, young and old, at the Chestnut Street Theatre in Philadelphia in November of 1828. All five images are of Louisa's various characters, her large eyes burning brightly and expressively. In January of 1829, she was performing in a comic afterpiece at the Chestnut called The Four Mowbrays, in which she portrayed... In sequence, Matilda Mowbray, 
Master Hector Mowbray, Master Gobbleton Mowbray, and Master Foppington Mowbray, a reviewer in a Philadelphia newspaper, enthused. This astonishing little creature evinces a talent for and a knowledge of the stage beyond what we find in many experienced performers of merit, and the applause bestowed upon her bespoke the wonder and delight of the audience. In 1839, Louisa had an engagement in Philadelphia once again. Now, at the age of 19, she was a leading lady of the Walnut Street Theater under the management of Frances Weems. She was earning $20 a week, a very respectable salary for a stock company player, and was once again appearing with Edwin Forrest, this time in the first elaborate production in America of the Bulwer-Lytton play entitled Richelieu. Mr. Forrest was never a good-tempered man, but he had many noble qualities. He was the fairest actor that ever played. If the character you sustained had anything good in it, he would give you the chance of showing it to the audience. He would get a little below you, so that your facial expression could be fully seen. He would partially turn his back, in order that the attention should be given entirely to you. This will be better understood by actors who know how differently some players act. That was her professional opinion, at any rate, and by this point her opinions had a wealth of experience to back them up. Much had happened to Louisa during the interim. She had gone twice with her family to play theatres in the Caribbean and had twice been shipwrecked. Her stepfather and her youngest half-sister had perished from the yellow fever in Jamaica, and she had almost lost her mother to the disease, too. Indeed, the family came close to being swept up in a slave uprising there as well. The shipwrecks nearly took her life, though in her memoir she just matter-of-factly describes being asked to walk along a submerged bowsprit in a storm to the waiting rescue boat. Nothing to see here, just another day in the life of a strolling player. There was always another play to do, so as ever she simply got on with it. Soon enough, she and Mamma and her two remaining little sisters, Georgiana and Aideen, were back in New York, and Louisa was doing a small role at the Bowery Theatre, singing a popular little song called A Nice Young Maiden for 48 Nights. And the family got hired to be in the company of a theatre in Boston, and they even went briefly all the way to Nova Scotia, where, she writes mysteriously and unhelpfully, we saw a great deal of human nature. Hmm. But the last time in her life she would ever risk a long ocean voyage was when she took a ship from Boston to New Orleans. Indeed, like Edwin Forrest before her, in her teenage years she went west and played both the ornate theaters of New Orleans and also the rough stages along the Mississippi and Ohio River basins from Cincinnati to St. Louis to Vicksburg. In fact, even before she was doing Ritula with Forrest in Philadelphia, she had worked with him in Natchez, Mississippi, doing Lady Macbeth to his Mr. Macbeth, and then being Ophelia to his Hamlet. Though she rarely did tragic roles during her career, as a professional, she was always ready to do any part she was hired to do. From long practice, she was able to memorize lines at lightning speed and was always word-perfect. Forrest must have marveled that the little girl he had worked with in Baltimore was now spouting Shakespeare along the Mississippi, or 
Maybe Forrest just knew that that was life in the theater. You meet someone in a minor role, and then the years rush by, and the next time you see them, they've got top billing, and the next time you see them again, they're hiring you. Little Louisa Lane had now reached her full height of just over five feet. She had a trim figure and erect posture, long dark hair, and her large, heavily-lidded eyes made an impression on audiences all the way to the back row. She was now officially a leading lady and would never relinquish that all-important distinction for the rest of her life. Oh, and, and she'd gotten married at age 16 to a man more than two decades older than her. Did I mention that? Well, perhaps I didn't, because she barely mentioned it herself. In her autobiography, her description of her first husband, another expatriate Englishman named Henry Blaine Hunt, states merely that he was, quote, a very good singer, a nice actor, and a handsome man of forty. And that's all we know. They were performing together in New Orleans in a play called Charles II, The Merry Monarch. Mr. Hunt played the king, Louisa played one of the ladies of his court, and two months later they were married. Now, in the course of researching the marriages of 19th century theater people, one often notes that the age disparity was often startling. Generally, men were in their 40s, 50s, and even 60s marrying girls in their teens or early 20s. Now, that tells us something about the gender power disparities of the day. But we learn not much from Louisa herself about anything she felt for Mr. Hunt. At any rate, he did not seem to rule over her. We can note that professionally her career blossomed from this point on, while his career faded. In fact, he seems to have rather just joined along with her family, for Louisa and her mother and her sisters were rarely separated. For about ten years, however, Louisa was Mrs. Hunt in all the records of her professional engagements. Finances must have been rough at times, for she did note that once, when she and her husband were in dire straits in Louisville, Kentucky, she had to agree to play a one-night stand as King Richard III just to get out of town. <laughs> Another rarely noted fact of Louise's career, in fact, is how often she played breeches parts or took on male roles. That her contemporary, Charlotte Cushman, played Romeo, is often noted in theater history textbooks. But Louisa played Romeo, too, when she was asked to. Oh, she had enacted men on stage in her childhood. It was perfectly natural. She kept on doing so as she reached full maturity. There was a lot of gender bending in the 19th century theater, more than is generally recognized. And I don't just mean Shakespearean roles like Viola and Rosalind, which she also excelled at. In fact, one of her most successful roles in her 20s was playing the title character in Fortunio and His Seven Gifted Servants at the Park Theater in New York, a grand extravaganza with elaborate sets and costumes about a, quote, young lady who goes about in man's clothes seeking adventure, close quotes. It was what in the 19th century they called a burlesque, a comic play in which a cast of women take on most or all the roles. It had all gone so well. That next season, she was back at the Park Theatre again, displaying her wide range and versatility, not only doing Cordelia to Forrest's Lear, but also doing a farce called The Married Rake, in which she played several characters of both sexes. But I 
really am trying to get us back to Philadelphia and to the Art Street Theater. It's drawing nearer, I promise. During the 1840s, Louisa was nearing the peak of her abilities, and though she did work in Philadelphia on several occasions, she wasn't based anywhere in particular. Like most theater folk, she was frequently on the move, playing in cities from New York to St. Louis to New Orleans. She and her mother and her sisters lived out of a never-ending succession of hotels and boarding houses. Now, this is hard on romantic relationships, as you might imagine. By 1847, she and Mr. Hunt were divorced, and he went off with another young actress. It's quite fortunate for her, at least, that they had never had children together. Not that Louisa seems to have lacked other male companionship. It's not been noted by any other historian that I have read, but there's a small entry in a book that we've referred to often in this podcast, Charles Durang's History of the Philadelphia Stage, a digital facsimile of which is viewable to everybody online, courtesy of the library of the University of Pennsylvania. In its sixth volume, it contains a very precise register of the last names of 19th century American actresses, helpfully listing both their maiden names along with their married names, because since women of that era were invariably formally referred to by the names of their husbands, it makes actresses' careers a little hard to follow in the annals as they switch monikers. Anyway, in this register, next to Louisa Lane, it quietly notes that at some point she was billed as having had four married names, not only Mrs. Drew and Mrs. Henry Hunt, but also Mrs. George Jameson. I was a bit thunderstruck when I saw this, actually, since there was a George Jameson working as an actor in Philadelphia in the mid to late 1840s, and as my friend Michael Leeger reminded me, Jameson was later quite infamous for being mixed up in Edwin Forrest's divorce case and was accused of seducing his wife. But I have never seen George Jameson's name connected to Louisa's anywhere else. Were they actually ever married? All I can say is that there is precedent for actresses taking on the name of Mrs. for a man they were shall we say, connected with, though not officially married to in a legal sense. It's a bit of a mystery, and perhaps it's just an error on Durang's part. But, oh, wait, there is yet another marriage in that register that we should mention, because this one, at least, is also noted in the family Bible that Louisa's mother kept, and it made her memoir, albeit briefly. In 1848, I married Mr. John Mossop. He died a few months after in Albany. And that's all we get to learn about that. Mossop, like Hunt, was a pleasant and charming singing actor. He was, of course, Irish, a nationality which she seems to have had a particular weakness for. She and Mossop met and were married in St. Louis, along the Mississippi, where they were both working at the time. She evidently usually maintained the upper hand in her relationships with men, even if they were a bit older than her, like Mossop. Indeed, Louisa evidently found it somewhat endearing that George Mossop had a severe stutter in everyday life, which completely vanished when he was speaking lines or singing on the stage. However, it turned out that Mossop also tended to consume copious amounts of liquor and eat onions just before performing, too. I don't know if these helped him with his stutter, but perhaps they 
helped Louisa to not mourn him too much when he drank himself to death in Albany, New York, along the Hudson, within a year. Whether Mr. Jameson entered her life before or after Mr. Mossop, or whether he did at all, as I said, is unclear. This section of her life is a little hazy in the records, though I must state at this point that I'm very much in debt to the excellent scholarship of Dr. Noreen Claire Barnes, who in her 1986 Ph.D. thesis really did the legwork on tracking down the details of Louisa's life and career before she settled in Philadelphia. I have, as always, put a bibliography of my own research in the blog on the podcast's website, www.aithpodcast.com. Please take a look at the blog post for today's episode if you're interested. As I do for every episode, I've posted some rarely seen images which I've come across in my research, along with additional details and thoughts about Louisa before she became Mrs. Drew. And hey, speaking of which, at last we really should bring in the person who brought that name into the story. John Drew had been born in Dublin, Ireland in 1828. He had been brought to America by his family, who had settled in Buffalo, New York, where his father was a theatrical manager and his brother Frank became an actor. John avoided the stage at first, running away to sea as a teenager, but three years on a New Bedford whaler evidently taught him just what endless manual labor was really like, and so he decided to take up the family trade instead, becoming what was termed at the time a low comedian. Now, low comedian was not a judgment on his moral character. It described a certain type of theatrical role in many plays. It is what actors called a line of business. Drew specialized in being the stage Irishman, which was much in demand in that era of the great Hibernian diaspora. As the comic character Handy Andy, he portrayed an Irish type that was, quote, gay and irresponsible, witty, highly imaginative, and quarrelsome. Rarely was he bright and clever. More often than not, he was sentimental and nostalgic, and not a bit above deep melancholy. By 1850, young John Drew had already had some success on the New York City stage and had just taken a job at a theater in Albany, where he joined a troupe of other Irish comedians. It was at this theater in Albany that the young gallant John Drew evidently met an intriguing and shy young lady, Georgiana Kinlock, was just 19 years old and still living with her mother, Eliza Kinlock, and her older half-sister, the recently widowed Louisa Lane Hunt Mossop, now 30 years old. John Drew came to where the family was residing and asked if he might pay court to sweet Georgiana. Whatever Georgiana may have thought about his romantic attentions, we don't know. But the handsome young Irishman certainly caught Louisa's eye. I'm not sure exactly how she managed it, but somehow Louisa convinced John that her sister was too young to marry him. It, quite an assertion from someone who had herself first wed at sixteen. Louisa sat him down and made her case quite persuasively, that he should marry her instead. Well, whatever exactly she did to carry the day, 
the fact that this established actress, eight years his senior, could help John's career evidently played some part in it. It was easier for married couples to get employment at theaters in those days. Everyone knew that. Managers were increasingly looking for respectability in their companies. Her own narration of her romantic victory over her sister was typically unromantic, businesslike, and to the point. And in 1850, I was married to Mr. John Drew. Although the marriage was not made public for some months, as I had several engagements to fulfill before I could join him. Then we went to Chicago for the season, and Buffalo, then to Albany. We went in the summer to New York to act in small comedies at Niblo's. But there must have been some honest passion in their relationship, because in December of 1851, their first child, a daughter, also named Louisa, was born. Indeed, the happy couple were not only new parents, but were using their married status as part of their professional appeal, performing together in aptly titled comedies like The Serious Family and Married Life. In the latter, the characters were in fact very similar to Mr. and Mrs. Drew's actual personalities. A married ex-footman, still unused to middle-class life, and his ambitious wife, who was obsessed with maintaining social respectability, constantly reprimanding him over using language that was now below his station. But, in fact, their station was improving. In autumn of 1852, the couple joined the company of the Chestnut Street Theatre in Philadelphia. Since she had first arrived in America 25 years previously, that city had always been a favorite of hers, and at this point in her life, it seemed to have many advantages over the rough western burgs that she had spent so much of her time in, or even the frantic bustle of New York. Philadelphia was renowned as being a clean city, with a modern water supply, it had culture, sophistication, and good schools. A good place, in short, to raise a family. The Druze even rented, for the first time, a real house. And for the first time in her life, Louisa set up housekeeping, along with her sisters and her mother, of course. And in fact, the next season, all of the Druze and the Kinlocks joined the company of another long-established Philadelphia playhouse, the Arch Street Theatre. We've had occasion to mention the Arch Street Theatre on this podcast before, though never in the depth that we have covered the other two major Philadelphia theatres that bore the names of their eponymous streets, the Chestnut and the Walnut. It had been designed by the architect William Strickland, with steps leading up to doors flanked by classical columns and a triangular pediment on its facade, displaying a statue of Apollo and his lyre. It seated just over 1,700 people at full capacity. The building itself had been commissioned in 1828 by a businessman who was under the mistaken impression that the walnut was about to be torn down and that he could challenge the dominance of the longtime local leader, the Chestnut Street Theatre. The Arch Street Theatre utilized a chiefly American company as opposed to the Chestnuts' distinct association with British actors. The neighborhood of the Arch Street Theatre, just to the west of 6th Street and a few blocks north of Market, was less fashionable than its competitors, with many working-class and middle-class families, including quite a few of Philadelphia's remaining Quakers who were 
highly unlikely to attend the theater at all, of course. The Arch Street Meeting House and the Friends Burial Ground were quite nearby. Nevertheless, the theater had held its own in Philadelphia's long-running cutthroat theater wars, mostly. For a while, it was managed by Edwin Forrest's brother, William, as we've noted, and Forrest, as well as his great rival, MacReady, had appeared there many times. But like other playhouses in the city, it was frequently under new management, as the shareholders who controlled it kept offering the lease to the next person who could perhaps bring them in an increasing return. Most managers made what money they could off of box office receipts by offering plays to appeal to popular tastes, while also garnishing a steady stream of the money from the lobby's theater bars, uh, in addition to a sly cut from the prostitutes who solicited customers in the top third-tier balcony, just as they did in nearly every other theater building in America in those days. That's one of the reasons why American theaters had a certain shoddy reputation. What the Arch Street Theater shareholders had not done was offer the lease to any female theatrical manager. This was the tactic that the Walnut had taken recently. In the wake of New York City's Astor Place riots of 1849, there was a general move in America to make theater respectable, to eliminate the rowdy male culture of the pit, and to create instead a place where middle-class women would feel welcome and a new moral tone generally would be established. It was a movement not unlike, in some ways, the current social examination of the American theater of our own times. Who's running the theater? What kind of plays are they programming? What values are they bringing with them? People wanted to know. Nice people no longer wished to be seen, where there wasn't the proper moral tone being maintained. The success of Laura Keene's company in New York had inspired the Walnut to recruit famous actresses, women of impeccable cultural standing, to take the reins. Charlotte Cushman had briefly done so earlier, although rather unsuccessfully, but in 1857, Mrs. D.P. Bowers, a former member of the Walnut Stock Company, had taken over as manageress, and Laura Keene herself had been the guest manager in the summer of 1858. In 1859, Mrs. Augusta Garretson, took over the walnut for several seasons, and though she had not been an actress herself in former days, she had a keen eye for the sort of programming women would bring their families to. She scheduled a lot of popular adaptations of Charles Dickens' novels, for instance. The Arch Street Theater, for its part, was still drawing crowds, with the Drews and the Kinlocks recruiting as many fellow family members as they could. Though back in the fall of 1853, Louisa was doing very little of the acting herself, for her son, John Drew, Jr., was on the way, finally making his appearance in November of that year. The proud papa, John Drew, Sr., had now taken the lease of the Art Street Theater and was running the company, along with another actor, William Wheatley. Louisa was back on the stage soon enough and was playing Beatrice to Wheatley's Benedict in Much Ado About Nothing. John also had his own success, pairing with his brother Frank as the two Dromeos in A Comedy of Errors, after which he scheduled his sister-in-law, Georgiana, to appear in the afterpiece, Satan in Paris. But the responsibilities of management were not really John's forte. When the Art Street gig failed financially, he gave it up and 
At Louisa's urging, briefly, he took over the National Theater near the Walnut, but then John decided he wanted to tour, and, and he gave up running companies entirely to go off and perform his popular stage Irishman parts at theaters in Chicago, New York, and even London and Dublin. Meanwhile, the couple's third and last child, their daughter, Georgiana, was born in 1855. Louisa kept performing steadily, despite having three small children at home, working at either the Arch or the Walnut, and joining her restless husband on the road when she could. John and I travelled in 1857, came back to Philadelphia in the spring, and joined Mrs. Bower's company at the Walnut Street Theatre. Mr. Drew, accompanied by my mother, paid a visit to England and Ireland. I took the leading position at the Walnut, and they returned in the winter, when Mr. Drew played a long engagement at the Walnut. But in 1858, John announced he had booked a simply magnificent tour that would take him across the Pacific Ocean to Australia. Furthermore, John proposed that he take sister Georgiana Kinlock, the original object of his romantic affections, remember, with him as his co-star. Seeing his wife's raised eyebrows, he also offered to take their daughter Louisa along with him as a sort of chaperone, I guess. For whatever reason, Mrs. Drew agreed to this dangerous-sounding plan. The family's financial situation was still rocky. Their little rented house in Philadelphia was not a grand one. The children were growing, and the receipts of this tour could possibly set them up quite nicely. John, Georgiana, and little Louisa went off on a world tour and she went back to working as the leading lady of the Art Street Theatre Stock Company, and even plunged ahead with further ambitious projects of her own, playing Queen Catherine in Shakespeare's Henry VIII at the Walnut, with Charlotte Cushman playing Cardinal Wolsey. The Arch, at that point, was under the management of William Wheatley and John Sleeper Clark, another actor. But in 1861, as the country plunged into civil war, that pair of men had decided to give up the Philadelphia Theatre as too risky a venture in such turbulent times. So, the board of the Arch Street Theatre stockholders turned to Mrs. John Drew. After all, she was, at the age of 41, literally the most experienced actor in the country. Her passion for meticulous standards was evident to everyone, and she was by then a regular attendee in the congregation of the highly respectable St. Stephen's Episcopal Church on 10th Street. The board felt that she would probably make the Arch more popular than ever, and the fashionable theater in the city. Interestingly, according to law, Louisa could not sign the contract without her wandering husband's approval, so they had to wait until John, at that point, in Ireland, uh, wrote back and gave his assent. So, Louisa Lane Hunt Mossop, Jameson, possibly, Drew, forever after, hereby known as Mrs. John Drew, 34 years after arriving in America, took on the position that was to define her life and her historical reputation, manager and reigning star of the Art Street Theatre in Philadelphia, 
Mrs. John Drew's Art Street Theatre was in fact its official name, and that was emblazoned on every advertisement, and she went about her new responsibility with fierce determination to make it worthy of the name. First, the theatre itself was renovated, top to bottom. New seats were installed, the stage was expanded, new scenery was built, and new curtains hung. Every interior wall and every musty corner was scrubbed out and repainted. Most importantly, she decided to abolish the infamous third tier, banning prostitutes from entering the building and forbidding the sale of liquor. She assembled a new company, drawing from local Philadelphia professionals and amateur societies. She hired her childhood friend, Alexina Fisher, and her brother-in-law, Frank Drew. She was determined, as well, to pay her actors fair salaries and to never miss a payday, even if she had to borrow money to meet payroll every week. She rehearsed the actors every day, insisted on rigor and discipline at rehearsals, and spent time carefully directing them and arranging the scene cues with the stagehands with the assistance of the theater's longtime stage manager, William Fredericks, and its treasurer, William Murphy. Only Sunday was a day of rest, and she and Mrs. Kinlock and the rest of the clan all lined up, a respectable family at last, in their labeled pew at St. Stephen's. On Saturday, August 31st, 1861, her first production opened at the Arch, Sheridan's The School for Scandal, Mrs. Drew played Lady Teasel. She drove the company hard that year, but she drove herself even harder. That season she would play 42 roles in all, including a new version of Camille, in which she starred, always arriving at every rehearsal with each line perfectly set in her memory. The repertoire was rotated as public interest dictated, and by Christmas she was playing Rosaline in Shakespeare's Love's Labor's Lost, the newspapers noted with approval the scenery, the designs for which they said had been shipped from London by Mr. John Drew at great expense, based upon the paintings of Watteau, with shepherds and shepherdesses playing the pipes in the background beside a lake of real water. In January of 1862, Mr. John Drew, their daughter Louisa, and her sister Georgiana finally returned from their prolonged world tour. Their daughter was much grown since she had seen her last, of course. Her husband John was full of energy and jests as ever. But it was Georgiana, who no doubt had most of her attention, standing on the doorstep with a slightly sheepish look. Because in her sister's arms, as Mrs. John Drew could hardly help noticing, was a baby girl. A girl who looked very much, in many ways, like Mr. John Drew. And at this dramatic moment, we're going to leave the action right there. At the curtain, oh, we haven't even gotten to the even more juicy tidbit that I mentioned earlier in the episode. Folks, you'll just have to get another ticket for the next show. Tune in to see how it all turns out for the thrilling continuation of our story of Louisa Lane Drew, the Duchess of Art Street, part I'm Peter Schmetz, and the sound and music are by Christopher Mark Colucci. The voice of Louisa Lane Drew was performed by Susan Riley Stevens. I also want to thank Dr. Eric Collery, Curator of Theater and Performing Arts at the Harry Ransom Center at the University of Texas, Austin, 
for inspiring the topic of this episode and for providing me access to material in the Ransom Center collection. And I must also acknowledge all the help I receive from the wonderful staff in the Rare Book Department of the Free Library of Philadelphia, most especially Karen Suni, the curator of the theater collection there. Librarians are there to save the world, folks. Always remember to support them and their important work. If you'd like to have a daily dose of Philadelphia theater history, please follow us on Facebook or Twitter. The links are in the show notes. If you want to buy me a coffee, there's a link to buymeacoffee.com. And as always, there are additional images, blog posts, and bibliographies about this episode and all others on our website, www.aithpodcast.com. Thanks for coming along on another adventure in theater history, Philadelphia. Mm-hmm.